thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome to another episode of The Real Food Reel. Today on the show I am joined by Tim Noakes. Now Tim probably doesn't need an introduction but I'll lay the foundations and then we'll get started. Tim Noakes is a South African professor of exercise and sports science at the University of Cape Town. He is famous for his 1986 book Law of Running in which he dedicated a whole chapter to the importance of carbohydrates promoting their benefits to runners and other athletes. As most of you will know, his stance has now strongly changed, and he is one of the world's most famous low-carb, high-fat supporters. Tim's recent book, The Real Meal Revolution, is based on this approach, and it's taking South Africa and the world by storm. The Real Meal Revolution has been on the South African national bestsellers list for 20 weeks, and has sold over 160,000 copies. Today on The Real, Tim and I will chat all things real food and low-carb, high-fat, and I'm honored to have him join us today. Hi, Tim, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Steph, for that lovely introduction. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Yeah, I'm super excited. And so we'll okay. dive straight in, um, just so that we can sort of summarize your story and and tell our listeners anything that they may not know. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of your journey and specifically your catalyst for dietary change? Sure, Steph. Uh, I started medical school in 1969 as a medical student, and it was very shortly after the introduction of the muscle biopsy technique in Scandinavia. And the whole focus in the exercise science became the role of muscle glycogen or muscle carbohydrate stores in endurance performance. And here I am, a young medical student knows absolutely nothing, studying physiology. And the first thing that, but I'm an athlete and I love sport and I want to know how I can perform better. And the first lectures we have is that muscle glycogen determines everything in performance. We could forget everything else. We've just got to have muscles that are loaded with glycogen. So I'm starting as an, an oarsman and a marathon runner and I buy into this high carbohydrate diet without ever having any scientific understanding at all. So what next happens is that then I go and run marathons and I eat lots of carbohydrate and I get worse, but I didn't realize it at the time. But over a period of 10 or 15 years, my performance has got dramatically worse and I, my weight went up and I struggled to control weight. But as far as I was concerned, this was the way to go. And I continued and then I wrote the book Law of Running in 1986, as you said, and there it says, lots of carbohydrates. And we at this time were studying carbohydrates, doing highly sophisticated studies. And every time we used them, we showed that they helped. Well, of course they helped because the people we were studying were dependent on them. So if you give people who are dependent on carbohydrates more carbohydrates, they will perform better. But that doesn't answer the question of what if you stopped eating the carbohydrates in the first place, could you perhaps perform better? So we fast forward to 2010, and I've just finished writing a book called Waterlogged. And it's the night that I send it off to the editors. And this has been a 30-year journey 
in which I showed that the advice to overdrink during exercise had killed people and had certainly harmed many people. And so I'd taken 30 years to, to put together this body of science, and I was really excited. And I went to bed, and in the middle of the night, my brain said to me, you must get up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, and you must go out and run, and you must never stop running for the rest of your life. So it's not that I hadn't been running, but I hadn't been training seriously. So my, the message to me was, you better get out and train properly and get healthy again. So I went out the next morning. I had the most terrible run ever. And I came up this tiny little hill, and I felt like I was at the summit of Mount Everest when I finished it. And then I realized something drastically wrong. I went home and opened my emails, and there was an advert, lose six kilograms in six weeks without hunger, from Drs. Westman and Voli and Finnick. And Finney. and then I, I saw that and I said, but that's garbage. We know that. And then I saw that they'd written a book called The New Atkins for the New Year. And I said, how can these serious scientists link themselves to Atkins who tried to kill us? <laughs> and I said, there's a paradox here. I trust these guys. I'm just going to find out. So I went and bought their book. And two hours later, I'd read enough of the science to realize that we'd been hoodwinked or I'd been hoodwinked about the role of carbohydrates in health. And perhaps for some of us, a low-carbohydrate diet would be better. So on the basis of what I read, I, within two hours, I decided that's it. I've eaten my last carbohydrate. And within six weeks, my health improved so astonishingly that I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I still, to me, it's still a miracle today. And my running improved dramatically. So I went from the slob who was sort of slogging along, hating running, to someone who's really enjoying it and even pretending to run a bit faster. So, and in my, I have one long training run I do uh, once a week usually, and my times had increased to two hours, 20 minutes on this run. And within, within six weeks, I got it back to one hour 40, which was what I'd been running 20 years earlier. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I said, how can in six weeks, this dietary change produce this incredible result? So I was sold on it, but I didn't do anything about it for at least a year because I knew it would be very controversial if I suddenly went from saying eat lots of carbs to saying eat lots of fat. And eventually it came out. And then, of course, the media picked up on it in South Africa. Here's the guy who always said you must eat carbs is now saying you must eat fat. And then the industry got involved and the dietitians got involved and they started attacking me left, right and center. And <laughs> so it became a a cause celeb in South Africa, This how this guy changed and how he was a complete fraud, etc., etc., etc. And anyway, the end result was a, a year ago we wrote Real Meal Revolution and it just took off and the people have loved it. And as you indicated, it's been the bestseller in South Africa in the last year and it's still, last week, was still number one bestseller. That's 14 months after release. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. And it really changed South African thinking and it's on nutrition. Uh, we're going to be releasing the book globally in June and I think it might well have the same effect globally. So that's the position at the moment. We are still in a country where the medical opinion is that a low-carbohydrate diet will cause heart disease and cause you to have heart attacks and so on, uh, despite the fact that we have this incredible rates of obesity and diabetes and the people can't see that that's the problem. It's not heart disease. It's obesity and diabetes. And that's what we're really trying to attack. We're trying to say this is the diet you need if you're insulin resistant and have the metabolic syndrome. And there's this range of diseases that we just ignore. And we say, oh, we can't change your diet because it'll make you die of heart disease, which I don't think is true. So that's the situation at the moment.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some huge changes more recently, but as a general rule, the world is still certainly afraid of fat. So it's definitely going to take some time to undo that. But, you know, we thank you for the work that you continue to do. (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. Beautiful. So what I love about what you're doing as well is that you are certainly playing quite a big role in the real food research. And I don't think our listeners know much about Noakes Foundation. I know it's fairly new in the big picture. So could you share with us about this venture, what the Noakes Foundation is about, and perhaps how the Real Food Real could be involved, how our listeners could contribute? Indeed. Thank you, Steph. When I started writing in 1986 or 85, and I, I decided that the book, all the money that I got from books I wrote, I'd give for research because that was the way I could thank all the people who'd worked in the past and all their knowledge to try and keep the knowledge going, so paying forward, as we call it. And so I set up a, a trust, and that trust currently funds a senior researcher at the University of Cape Town, who incidentally is doing this fabulous work on animal biology. And just by chance has, is looking at lions in South Africa and particularly captive lions who have severe rates of obesity and diabetes. Why? Because the lions are the most carbohydrate resistant animals in the kingdom. Cats and lions just cannot metabolize carbohydrate. And unfortunately, when they're put in captivity, they're not fed properly. They're fed carbohydrates and they get fat and diabetic. In fact, it's the best animal to study diabetes in because they develop diabetes so quickly. And you can reverse it so quickly by just taking them off carbohydrates. So anyway, that's, that's one of the stories. So when we wrote Real Meal Revolution, I knew that there's going to be an outrage and people are going to say, oh, you just do it for the money. So we decided then that we'd form the Noakes Foundation to channel all the money that came from Real Meal Revolution and anything else I do, the lectures I give, to develop research and to fund research in low-carbohydrate eating. So that's what we've done. We have this foundation, and our goal is to give 2 million South African rands a year to research, which is quite substantial in South African terms. In fact, it would be the biggest single donation by any organization outside of governments and government-funded groups. Uh, so that's our goal, and, and I think we'll achieve it within about a year. We'll be able to, to give 2 million rand a year in perpetuity to, to this research. And it's terribly important because low carbohydrate, there's no money for low carbohydrate, or there's very little money for low carbohydrate research. And we know that that sort of money will make a real difference. So in, in the interim, we've also, we've got a small research group going on doing low carbohydrate research. And our first study has just been completed. And ironically, we did raise, we raised 2 million rand from government funding bodies to do our first major intervention, which will be in fat runners in Cape Town. Yes. So we discovered that, <laughs> we discovered that 30% of people running half marathons in Cape Town are overweight or obese. So, yeah, they think they're very healthy like I did when I was running and being overweight. And they can't understand why they're overweight, despite the fact that they're running 80, 100 kilometers a week. And the answer is because they're eating too much carbohydrate, as I told them to. So now I'm trying to correct. <laughs> so, so the question we want, we, we want to look at insulin-resistant people and find them easily. And I think that if you have people who are obese and they're running marathons, that's a pretty good indicator they're probably insulin-resistant. 
And then we will find amongst those groups those who are the most insulin resistant and those who are the least insulin resistant. And we'll randomize them both to high-fat or high-carbohydrate diets and see what the outcomes are. And our hypothesis is that if you're carbohydrate-sensitive or insulin-sensitive, it really doesn't matter what diet you eat. Your performance probably stays the same, and your health probably doesn't change all that much. But if you're insulin-resistant and you eat a high-carbohydrate diet, that is detrimental to your health, whereas eating a high-fat diet is probably beneficial. So that's the, in terms of both health and your performance. So that's the, the research question that we're looking at, first question. And the next question is, as a result of all this publicity, I get letters every day from South Africans saying, thank you, you saved my life, etc., etc., etc. And they tell me all the conditions that have been proved. And there are about 18 or so who've written to say that type 2 diabetes has improved to the point where they've stopped taking medication. Wow, that's now, that's thing. remarkable because... We teach in medicine, as you know, that, that uh, type 2 diabetes is irreversible, just gets worse with time, and you'll eventually get on insulin and you'll die from all the complications. And to have 18 people say that they've actually reversed means we need to study them and find out why have they reversed and how much carbohydrate do they need to show that the disease comes back again. So in other words, I don't think they're cured. I think if you expose them to enough carbohydrate, all the signs of diabetes will return. But the question is, how did they reverse it? And why did I, for example, I wasn't able to reverse my type 2 diabetes. I didn't mention that I eventually discovered I had type 2 diabetes, despite doing all this thing, all this running and eating this healthy diet. And in a sense, that, that's what inspired me. I said, you know, if I had everything going for me in life, I had all this education. I did exactly what I was told, and yet I got type 2 diabetes. What hope is there for the poorer people in Cape Town who don't have that information, who don't have the capacity to exercise, who don't have access to the food I have? How are they going to avoid diabetes? And the answer is they're not, unless they get the right advice. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so exciting about the Noakes Foundation because I'm sure you're exposed to this on a daily basis. The rebuttal is often, but where's the research? And, you know, the reality is is we, there hasn't been enough money available for us to do those huge studies where, you know, we obviously need that information. So it's so exciting to see that you've set that up in South Africa and I can't wait to hear of, of the study results um, when you're a bit further down the track. Thanks very much. I must just tell you, you know, the funniest thing happened yesterday. So we've organized this low-carb conference in Cape Town, and we've got 15 of the world authorities on the low-carbohydrate diets. I mean, you couldn't – it is a stellar collection of people. And myself and Corin Thompson did it completely at our own financial risk. And eventually we got uh, financial support from Old Mutual, an insurance company in Cape Town and South Africa and in the United Kingdom. And yesterday, we were told that the CPD points, the professional development points that you get when you bring experts into the country had been removed from the conference. It's utterly astonishing. So we have these 14 or 15 people who are the absolute authorities who've been teaching this and researching it for 20, 30 years, most of them. Suddenly, on pressure from inside the country, from we suspect who it is, they remove the CPD points so that it puts the whole conference at risk one week before the conference. And you have to ask, we thought education was exposing the country to the best thinking in the world, but apparently not. You're not allowed to do that anymore. 
if you talk low carbs, that is bad and you can't talk about it. You can't expose the South African population to that information. So it's, it's utterly astonishing to understand just how ingrained these forces are that are trying to prevent us get this information. And if they, if they can do that to us, what can they do to the bodies that are giving out funding, as you indicated? That's, yeah. that's how bad it is. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I think, you know, again, it's a huge example of how big this picture is. It's, you know, I mean, we could talk about it all day, but the vested interest and, you know, we all know how the food pyramid started. Um, so I guess the reality is it's just going to take time, but we're not going to give up. So that's the main thing. No, exactly. We're going straight to court on Monday. So we're going oh. to the high court in Cape Town. Wow. And they wouldn't expect that. But, you know, the irony is that if, if what they did is true and if they try to stop the CPD points, what it means is that in future, if the cardiac surgeons in Cape Town want to invite the professor of cardiac surgery from Boston to give lectures, they won't get any CPD points because that's what we've done. We've brought the absolute authorities and they've denied us CPD points. So they're going to destroy the whole CPD point structure of postgraduate education and, and continuing education on this ruling which they, don't, they haven't thought it through at all. So it's going to be an interesting fight. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty huge um, thing to have to do one week out for the conference. Yes, but we, we, we're up to it. And uh, I think that people don't understand we are so committed to this. Mm. I just mentioned, you know, that's so funny because, you know, I don't, I, I could not believe this, but I get a lot of journals and, and many of them I don't open. And one particular journal, I'd never open it. And about a week ago, I decided to open this journal by chance, and I opened it on the one page, which was a study from Cape Town in this International Journal of Preventive Cardiology. And it, for the study from Cape Town of the incidence of insulin resistance in the people living in one of, the, one of the suburbs of Cape Town, and it was astonishing because it had all their values for cholesterol and triglycerides, HDL, glucose, HbA1c, insulin. And they concluded that 50 to 60% of this population were insulin resistant. And this is on our doorstep in Cape Town. And the university <laughs> that services those people, the rector is a medical doctor, does not believe in low-carbohydrate diets. And the professor of nutrition at that university says you may not eat less than 40% carbohydrate. And, they are try and that is the population they are treating. Highly insulin resistant, documented. And they can't see it. They can't see the beast in diabetes in the people that they're meant to serve. It's astonishing. I mean, I know I'm going to sound like a big skeptic, but surely they must be getting funded because how can they not see it? I mean, to me, it seems crystal clear. And the research is there. Yeah. No, that's quite right. In this country, the sugar industry plus other industries control dietetics, the dietetics. And so, and it literally... Dietitians in this country are issued documents about telling them what they might say and what they might not say on banting. Yeah. And I believe, or on the low-carb diet, I believe that a recent circuit has gone out. I believe, I can't say it's true, it may not be true, it may be hearsay, it may be wrong, saying this is the way you deal with people who ask about banting and that you may not prescribe the banting diet. Yeah. I know at my own medical school, uh, the hospital is told you may not prescribe a low-carbohydrate diet to people with diabetes. Mm. That's that's the official position in our medical school. Yes, we can only hope it can change. Just to clarify mm. for our listeners, what's banting? 
Ah, Banting was, William Banting was the first guy who wrote a book on the site in 1862. William Banting, he was an undertaker. For 20 or 30 years, he'd struggled with his weight. He was grossly obese and he had many complications. And he went to his doctor, William Harvey, who said, you are fat and because you eat too much carbohydrate and put him on a low carbohydrate diet. And then he wrote a book called Letter on Corpulence, which was published globally and was very widely read. And of course, the medical profession got all upset with him trying to tell them how to eat. And anyway, the point was, it was the first book suggesting that low carbohydrate diet reversed obesity. Mm. Harvey was then put under pressure by the profession to explain why a low carbohydrate diet worked. And because he had no idea, he came to the conclusion it was because it was high in protein. And he subtly modified the diet to make it more high protein and less fat. So it became a high protein, low fat, low carbohydrate diet. And Banting complained. He said, but this is not as good a diet as you first prescribed to me. And then Epstein, a guy in, in Germany, professor at Göttingen University, professor of medicine, he took it further and then he described the absolutely the correct diet, the high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And he described how fat took away your appetite and took away your hunger, yes. which of course is what Atkins described in 1970. But in his book in 1884, and it's called Corpulence and the Physiological Principles for its Management, I think, I think that's the book's name, he describes there the high-fat diet. And so, in fact, it's not really the Banting diet that we talk about. It's really the Epstein diet. He was the first guy to write a book about a high-fat diet and how fat removes your hunger. Yes, that's the key. That satiety is what we teach everyone. <laughs> not in this country. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> I just wanted to backtrack to the Noakes Foundation just to direct our listeners to how they can get involved or they can help. Is it best for them to go to the website or is there something that you could um, suggest to us would be the first place yeah, they could start? Uh, you know, I've, I retired in January this year, so now I've got much more time and we are going to focus much more on the Noakes Foundation and raising more funds and improving the quality of our website. That's, we're just about to do that. So what we're really interested in is anyone who's, who's got a story that they cured a particular condition as a consequence of going on this diet. And we're going to have a, a sort of portfolio where people write in and we give that information. And of course, it's people say it's anecdote, but it's not anecdotes, you see, because you judge an anecdote against the background. And if in the background, no one is curing themselves spontaneously of diabetes or hypertension, it doesn't happen. Medication does not cure diabetes. It does not cure hypertension. You have to take that medication for life and it makes no difference to your health mortality in the end, but we don't, medicine doesn't tell you that. So if a person spontaneously corrects their diabetes, it's what we call a black swan, because that shows that's something that we didn't expect. So we're very keen to interact with people on that, that level. If there were people who wanted to give us lots of money, of course, that would be fantastic, but we wouldn't expect that at this stage. <laughs> and eventually, I think we'll move to crowdfunding. But, you know, that'll take two or three years until we get the, the research going and, the, and know where, where we're going. So, yes, please, they can interact with the website. It's thenoakesfoundation.org. 
and give us your information if you've had some remarkable successes and follow us and eventually uh, just spread the word that, that we are trying to do something and we are doing good research and that there is, in fact, a lot of good information about the low-carb diets and its benefits and we hope to emphasize that in the future as well. Absolutely. So we'll put the links in the show notes, team. So be sure to check that out. And if anyone has a story of success with low-carb, high-fat, then um, certainly you can reach us. Um, I'll put our email address in the show notes as well so you can send those stories through. That would be great. Wonderful. Okay, so we're going to change directions just slightly, but same topic. On the weekend, I watched Run on Fat, so the second <laughs> series in the Serial Killers films. I know you're involved, um, and I'd love to chat to you more about Serial Killers and Run on Fat, and specifically your thoughts around the experiments in Run on Fat and how we can use that for the future of endurance performance. Great. Well, Steph, you're ahead of me because I haven't seen the, the movie yet. We're only going to see it next week as part <laughs> of the But let me tell you, Serial Killers 1, what happened, and then we can build into Serial Killers 2. Yeah, great. O'Neill, who is the director and the film producer, who'd never produced a film in his life, came to Cape Town because his father had had a heart attack and his uncle had developed type 2 diabetes, and both of them were good athletes in Ireland. And they'd done everything they were told to do. They'd eaten their low-fat diets and they'd never smoked and they'd been athletic and both had got sick. And he wanted to know, well, what was in it for him? Was he also going to get sick because he ate the same diet as they did? So he came to Cape Town and for, for a month he put himself on a very high-fat diet, like about 80% fat. And we monitored him and showed that everything got better during that time and nothing got worse. And so he then did the video of, of this whole story and managed during the course of it to meet some athletes, particularly the Australian cricket team. And as a consequence of all of this, many members of the Australian cricket team also changed the diet and their performances shot up dramatically, <laughs> particularly the ones who are probably may well win the World Cup in a few weeks. Oh, I time. can't wait for that. <laughs> so Mitchell Johnson and David Warner and Steve Smith and Shane Watson, four of the key players in that team, all changed their diets and their performances went through the roof and have gone through the roof and stayed through the roof for the last year. So unfortunately, it looks like South African advice is going to help Australia win the Cricket World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> maybe New Zealand can catch them, maybe South Africa can catch them, but they certainly are the favourites at the moment. So anyway, then because of this, he saw this remarkable change in these elite athletes. He decided, I must look at elite athletes. So he went to America and found a burgeoning number of athletes who were, had, had adopted this diet and were benefiting. And then I know that, you know, he, he filmed the guy and his wife, Simi, uh, rowing all the way from San Francisco to Hawaii on a high-fat diet. And what he said was remarkable was that when they finished, they were not hungry and they hadn't lost a gram of weight. And despite the fact that they'd just eaten fat and they were incredibly, incredible health. Whereas I've seen people row across the Pacific and, or the Atlantic, I should say, and they have been, when they get home, they're, they're absolutely sick. They've lost so much weight. They're lethargic. They're depressed, everything. And it so happens that my 72-year-old friend, 
Dr. Otto Tanning, who swam the English Channel, which you know is 12, 13, 14 hours swimming. He converted to this diet and he's a cardiac surgeon. For a cardiac surgeon to eat a high-fat diet, that's quite something. And he, he's the oldest man ever to swim the English Channel. He said it was astonishing. He said when he finished, it was like he could go back and swim back to England. And he got back in the boat and drove the boat all the way back to England. So three hours, he said, everyone else he'd ever seen, when they finish their swim, they just lie on the bottom of the boat and feel exhausted. Oh, they're basically carried out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and Danala said to me that the stories they're getting back on the changes in the athletes who adapt to this diet is remarkable. And I think what happens is that exercise is very pro-inflammatory. And if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet, you're even more inflamed all the time. And so you're struggling not only to, to get over the training session, you're struggling because your body's inflamed. And in the long term, that can't be good. But if you eat this diet, you cut out the inflammation and you recover much more quickly. And I think that's what the athletes are, are really noticing. Oh, absolutely. And I know Steve Finney had run all the bloods post-row and there were like basically zero inflammatory markers, which was, you know, great proof that that's actually what's going on. That's part of why their experience was so pleasant, part of why there was such great recovery. And, and you know, I think that evidence is what we need because for athletes who are really performance-driven, you know, knowing that this, this sort of approach nutritionally can really help them recover and get back to training the next day, then, I mean, surely that's enough of a why for them because it's, you know, certainly a big priority of theirs. Exactly, Stefan. Let me just indicate the problems that the athletes have in getting the right information. So I actually work with quite a lot of Australian athletes, <laughs> by the way, now because they've seen the results. And, of course, their advice that they're given at the Australian Institute of Sport is that you must eat a high-carbohydrate diet. Why? Because the Australian Institute of Sport has financial responsibilities to certain uh, sponsors. Yes. Who happen to produce high-carbohydrate drinks and things. And the nutritionists aren't going to be allowed to say anything other than that high-carbohydrate diets are important. Now, what the scientists do is what I did for 20 years is we take the athletes and we assess the value of the diet on a 20 or 40 or 100 kilometer time trial in the laboratory. And that's all we do. We don't see how they're recovering from that, from their training. And all the evidence that a high carbohydrate diet is beneficial and which is touted out all the time by the dietitians and the exercise physiologists who, who are often funded by industry is, well, if we take an athlete and we make them cycle 40 kilometers in the, in the, in the laboratory, they do better if they're on a high-carbohydrate than if a high-fat diet. And I contend that, but, but that's probably what the evidence shows. But, it, but that's not what sport's all about. It's sport is recovery and all the other things that you mentioned. And I think that's that why we're trying to move the debate away from simply performance on a single test to performance over a season and risk of injury and infections and recovery and all those things. And that's the way we need to go. Absolutely. And that's one of my biggest frustrations. I'm sure you get it all the time. They do a study and it's one day and of course their performance is down because they're a total sugar burner. And so you pull out their only source of fuel and no wonder they can't perform. And the studies need to be done, you know, during and after the adaptation phase, which we know can take eight to 12 weeks in someone that's been doing or following a 
traditional high carb sports nutrition approach. So, you know, we need to look at the bigger picture. And I think finally the research is doing that with examining after exercise and adaptation phases. And, and certainly that's what run on, run in, run on fat covers. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think they, they're going to make a big difference that, that film. Incidentally, the next film he's going to do is on cancer and the high fat diet. So that's, mm. <laughs> well, Denal is moving on and challenging all our beliefs. Yeah, he mustn't be shy of controversy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he loves it. He wouldn't step back from it for one second. No, absolutely not. So just for the listeners who haven't seen Run On Fat yet, it's not out in Australia just yet, but I have posted a review online and given the information on pre-release. So you can get it, get your hands on a copy of Run On Fat and certainly learn, learn more about their approach to endurance performance. So we're going to switch directions just a little bit now, Tim, if that's okay. I've got a couple of audience questions for you. Now, I'm sure this is a question that you get asked all the time, but one of our listeners wants you, your thoughts on how low is low carb and how you advise someone how low they, how low they go. And also how we can factor in things like high intensity, speed work, and certainly racing when we're an endurance athlete. Excellent, Steph. I think it depends how insulin resistant you are. And if you're like me, profoundly insulin resistant, you've got to go right down to 25 grams carbs a day or else you don't really get the full benefits. Whereas if you are only mildly carbohydrate intolerant or not at all, I think you could eat up to 200 grams a day. And my impression is that the world's leading endurance athletes have cut their carb intake dramatically and now probably don't eat more than 200, 300 grams a day, but probably 200 grams would be the maximum. And that's even the guys in the Tour de France. So they're beginning to realize that you don't need all that carbohydrate, that 200 grams is enough to see you through even the fantastic endurance events that they do. So that my argument is, let's say you are a high-carbohydrate eater, and you want to go on the start, I think the first thing I would do is I'd cut to 200 grams and see what happens and continue training. And if you find that you're doing well, cut to 175, 150, 125, 100, and just keep going until you find that your performance is impaired. And then that's probably where you want to go to. And I say that because I've had some elite athletes and they've gone cold turkey. They've gone from like, say, 300, 400 grams carbs a day down to 50 and they're literally decimated. They can't get out of bed in the morning. But they go up to 120, and their performance is dramatically improved, and they start to benefit. So for each of us, there's this ideal carbohydrate intake, which, which is very, very individualized. And we just have to find out where it is. And I think also we have to understand that there is performance and there's health. Those are the two issues. And I think that we should really be eating for health in the long term. And to check that, I really think you need to check how insulin resistant you are. Measure your HbA1c, your glycated hemoglobin. And if it's above 5.5 or 5.6, well, you're moderately insulin resistant. And you, you probably benefit by getting your carbs down and getting your HbA1c below 5.5. Regardless of what it does for your performance, in the long term, your health's going to benefit. So those are the principles. For some of our athletes, we find that they do not want any carbohydrates before or during exercise, and they just get stronger and stronger on this almost zero carbohydrate diet. For others, they never quite fully adapt, and I don't know why that is. 
and they still want to have their 200 grams of carbohydrate the day before an endurance event or a hard training session. And some of them will take carbohydrate during the races. And they find that that improves or keeps their performances very high, even though most of the time they're on a low-carbohydrate diet. So my point is we don't yet know, and it's very individualized, and people need to experiment, and don't be scared to experiment. Don't just continue doing the same old thing all your life and ar- arrive 50 years later and realize, my gosh, if only I'd done this, it would have been better. So, that, so those are the simple rules. I don't think anyone needs more than 200 grams of carbohydrate a day. The limit, the minimum is 25, but that should only be for people who've really got medical problems, they profoundly insulin resistant. And anywhere between that would, would be ideal. What I would say is from our studies and work of Dr. Finney, once you go on a high-fat diet, you metabolize carbohydrate quite differently. And so when you take carbohydrate, you store it all as muscle glycogen and liver glycogen, and you continue to burn fat, which is quite different from the other people who are carbohydrate-adapted. When they're taking carbohydrate, they will continue to burn carbohydrate. And so, for again, from our studies, at least 60% of the carbohydrate that you ingest you burn when you're not exercising. So that's an excess. You don't really need all that amount, which, which I don't think people yet understand, that if you're a high-carbohydrate eater, most of the carbohydrate you burn during rest, not during exercise. Whereas when you're a high-fat burner, any carbohydrate you take in, you store, and then you use it during exercise. You don't store it. You don't use it when you're at rest. So you become much more efficient at using the carbohydrate, and that's why you can get by with high performance, eating much less carbohydrate. Yeah, I think that's what I love so much about the train low, race high approach that a lot of athletes and, and certainly mine are experimenting with because you get the health benefits day to day, but it gives you that sort of baseline to experiment with how your body requires carbohydrates in, say, a race environment. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's a very important point we have to make, that that the excess carbohydrate, if you're insulin resistant, is just making you sick. And if you're insulin sensitive, you're just burning it, wasting it anyway, because you should, you should be burning fat when you're not exercising. Yeah, beautiful. So much to consider there, but certainly experimentation is the first place to start. So thank you for clarifying that. I know we're probably limited by research a little bit with this question as well, but have you sort of done any studies or have you, ha- have you got any anecdotes from your athletes about, say, longer-term considerations for LCHF and performance? Yes, uh, I have the Paula Newby-Fraser, who was the world's greatest Ironman triathlete of all time. She won the Hawaiian Ironman eight times. She won 28 Ironman triathlons. And her equivalent was Mark Allen, the American, who dominated world triathlons for 14 years. And one of the questions is, how could they dominate the sport for so long? And Paula, who was originally from Zimbabwe and then came via South Africa, and I helped her in South Africa in her early career in North America. And in 1984, she phoned me. This is 1984, when Steve Finney had just published the first paper of High Fat Darts. And that's why I knew about Finney's work. And she said to me, Tim, what should I be eating during my Ironman triathlons and in my training? And what's the story about high-fat diets? Because she had come across the work of Finney. I said, Paula, I think there's a lot of scope for high-fat diets. 
and I think you should try it. And I never told her that she must cut carbohydrates. I just said, eat more fat. She interpreted it that she must cut carbohydrates. And at the end of her career, she said the most important piece of information she got in her entire career was to cut the carbs, which I didn't actually tell her. (laughs) (laughs) That's the intuition. (laughs) This this is 1984 when I was pushing the high-carbohydrate diets. But at least I had the insight to say, well, you know, if Steve Finney had, had done a study. By the way, Steve Finney's 1984 study was really interesting because he only studied five people and two of the athletes, their performance improved dramatically, like 50%. But the other three, their performances went down, like one went about 10 or 15, 20%, and the other one 30%. So when you summed it all up, there was no change. But that hid this whole story that two had improved dramatically and three had got worse. And again, showing that there's this individual response. But so my point is that, and I saw Paula, she was in Cape Town two years ago, and she's well into her 50s, and she still cycles incredibly well without much training. And she looks amazing. She's as lean as she always was. She's as muscular as she always was. And she's in fantastic shape. And we went out to dinner, and we had this very high fat, and I loved it. And I, I still remember her. I watched her in a triathlon in Cape Town after she retired. And the night before, she just had a fatty meal. She had yogurt and, I hate to say it, ice cream and hot chocolate sauce. So there was some carbohydrate in it or sugar in it. But it, she said, I just, I never carbo-loaded once in my life. So there, there are two athletes who, who survived a long time. And I think one of the problems why athletes get, they, they don't last a long time is probably nutritional and because of the inflammation that we talk about. So... Those are the two that two athletes who stick in my mind. And again, you have to go back to the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s. And I, I spoke to Ron Clark, who was, to me, one of the greatest Australian athletes of all time. He set 17 world records when I was a youngster in the 60s. And he's currently mayor of, uh, not Brisbane, the town, Gold Coast. He's the mayor of Gold Coast. And I was in touch with him recently. I said, Ron, what did you eat when you were setting all those world records? He said, we never ate carbohydrates. We just ate normally. And we didn't eat any fried foods and we didn't eat any uh, processed foods. We just ate natural foods, real foods that you speak about. And he said, that's what we ate. And here was a guy who set all these world records. So we have to remember that before the 1960s, all athletic performances were, were run on high-fat, high-carbohydrate diets. Sorry, high-fat, high-protein diets if they were from the Commonwealth countries, or sorry, I should say from Britain and from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, obviously some Commonwealth countries do have a high carbohydrate intake. But those countries, and, and in North America, the people would have been eating much more protein and fat and producing those performances. So that the, the carbohydrates, as we know, are just such a recent introduction into athletics. Yeah, well, that's the thing, I think the industry that, that's come around in the last sort of 40 or 50 years is where the problem has been created. So I think the athletes that were around before that time were certainly lucky because it's like when we look at what our great-grandparents ate, they knew what was right. <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, you know, people come to me and say, gee, you know, my grandparents lived to 90. They didn't have dementia, didn't have heart disease. And I said, yeah, and what were they eating? And, of course, they lived on a farm and they were eating farm foods which was very high in fat, yeah. Yeah, it's a good example of don't eat anything that your great-grandmother wouldn't eat. I love that quote. (laughs) That's right. 
Cool. So now we always have a few questions on the reel that we ask to get to know our guests a little bit more personally. And it will be before we wrap up today, Tim, because I'm conscious of your time. But see, I know you've run more than 70 marathons and ultra marathons. Were these mostly prior to your LCHF days? And and tell us more about your training um, these days as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Steph. Yeah, I... Now, it turns out that I, I was born in Zimbabwe and I was also raised on the traditional brick, British breakfast. And my parents actually raised me on a low-carb diet with lots of offal. We used to have liver and kidneys and brains and haddock for breakfast. That was breakfast. And, of course, bacon and eggs and sausages. And we ate lots of protein and lots of fat. And we were not allowed to eat sweets. We had sweets once a week if we were very lucky. So I was raised on a low-carb diet. And when I ran my first ultramarathon in 1973, I had this unbelievable race. I took essentially no carbohydrates over 90 kilometers. I was 56 miles, had this fabulous race, and was the leanest. I was very lean. Then, of course, I became clever because now I started buying into the high-carbohydrate story, which I learned in my medical training, which I was undergoing at that time. And immediately, I put on three kilograms or four kilograms and always struggled to regulate my weight. And my performances, I had to train even harder and I could never perform as well as I did in 1973. And so my performances tailed off. And actually, in in the 1980s, they tailed off terribly. And I think that was clear evidence that I was pre-diabetic already in the 1980s. And the diagnosis of diabetes was really only made in 2012 or so because I was so reluctant to make it. So I had this period when I was pre-diabetic and getting fatter and running was getting worse. So that was, that, and then the only way I could control my weight was to run between 120 and 180 kilometers a week. I used to just run all day to try and control my weight. <laughs> that was the only thing that would work. And then as soon as I stopped, the weight, the three or four kilograms would come straight on again. When I went on to the low-carb diet, I just, you know, I, it doesn't matter whether I train or don't. My weight stays absolutely the same and I'm, I don't get hungry and so on, as you know, all the benefits. What I'm doing now is I'm training more because I'm retired. So now I can train up to two hours if I want to on days, which I haven't done for, for decades. And so I'm training and I want to get back to run a marathon next year. I've got the half marathon, which I run in April every year, and I'm training 60 to 80 kilometers a week. That's what I focus on now, which is an enormous amount for me at at 65. But if I want to do the marathon, I want to train at about 80 kilometers a week. And you have to understand that's terribly slow. So the 80 kilometers takes all day. (laughs) (laughs) It takes all week. So I'd love to know your goal marathon time. (laughs) Well, my best was 2 hours 50. I was a slow runner, you know, that, in those days, I was a very slow runner. Today, I would have been much better because the times have slowed so much. But at the moment, uh, for, uh, let me tell you, when I was running at my best, for me to run 3.45 minutes a kilometer or six minutes a mile, that I could do that for 10 miles, and that was absolutely at the limit. So whenever I ran a 3.45 kilometer, I felt like I was flying. Now... And then I slowed down to at seven to eight minutes a kilometer. That's what I was running at when I was my fat, pre-diabetic, high-carb diet. Seven minutes, okay. 
Yeah, I was down to seven to eight minutes a kilometer. Now I'm back to five minutes a kilometer. And when I'm running five minutes a kilometer, I feel like I'm running at 3.45 as I was uh, 30, 40 years ago. In other words, I feel like I'm really an athlete again. Even though when I see myself on, on film, I say, but you look terrible. <laughs> You're running so slowly. I can probably see oh, that I'm running Five minutes minute per kilometer at 65 is very good. You're only comparing it to what you were, Tim. <laughs> exactly. And, and when I'm running, I honestly feel like I did at, at 25. It's an amazing feeling. Whereas when I'm running seven or eight minutes a kilometer as I was five years ago, I felt like I was 300 years old. <laughs> now I feel like I'm 20 again. So, so it's, uh, it's fabulous. And I'm, I'm, I'm just loving it. And I, I, I'm like, I was like a child when I first started running. I just I enjoyed it as much as I did then. And I'm sorry, one other point. The reason I think I also ran not just to control weight was because of the, the runner's high. And the reason I ran the Comrades Marathon, these long runs, was because we used to go and train 40 miles on a weekend, a long run. And, and I would just be in heaven. After 20 miles, I would just be in heaven because I had this huge high. And the world, there was nothing wrong with the world. There was no, everything was fantastic. Now I get that much quicker. If I run for two hours, now I'm in the same, I'm in the same mindset. So it seems to me that the high-fat diet brings on the runner's high much more quickly. <laughs> Another good side effect. It's never-ending, really. <laughs> Absolutely. So people need to, to think of that one. You know, yeah, you, that's a cool story. Ask, what were your secrets in life? And there were many, but one of them was discovering running. That was It was absolutely critical to me because I wasn't a natural runner. I'm a big guy and I was never a natural runner. And I discovered it and my brain just needed to run. And the other thing was discovering the low-carb diet. Those were two, two critical factors in my life. And I, ju I just wish that I'd never changed to the high carbohydrate diet because I know my running would have been much better and I would have run many more marathons and ultramarathons at a faster pace if I had just stayed on this diet all the time. Yes, you know what they say about hindsight? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Can you share with us what a day on your plate looks like, please, Tim? I'm sure you get asked this all the time as well, but we'd love on to know. On my plate, what I eat? Yes. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say it because I, I eat so little, and that's astonishing, and it's not because I have an eating disorder, it's just I'm not hungry. So for breakfast, it will be eggs and bacon, and baby sausages as well, and yogurt, and I will eat a huge breakfast, and I will make sure that I'm full. The things I avoid, of course, are no, there'll be absolutely no carbs and there'll be no sugar. I haven't had sugar now for three years and no sweet stuff for four years. And I'll wash that down with coffee. And then I will probably run at lunchtime or early afternoon. And then I'll have the evening dinner will be vegetable, lots of vegetables and fish usually or some chicken. And one of my favorites is chicken and yogurt, fabulous dish my wife makes. Or it could be pork. I love crackling and... Or it could be duck, and those are the uh, those are. Or it could be meat. I'm not really a big red, red meat eater. I think that's an error. But in South Africa, as in Australia, merino lamb is just unbelievable. So we eat we eat lots of lamb. So it will be a, a meat dish or a fish dish with lots of vegetables. And to snack, I snack on nuts, and and that's it. And I, I know people would say, but but this is a nutritionally deficient diet. You know, you're not getting enough of X, Y, and Z. But I seem to be doing pretty well on it. And um, 
I'm not a great one for masses of vegetables. Um, I, I just never have been. Uh, they don't agree with me, I don't think. And, and so the only argument I might say is perhaps I could eat more vegetables. And then I bring in the probiotics and those things. I do take some probiotics as well. And I take some nutritional supplements but for my diabetes and I take my medication. So I eat a very, very simple diet. And how's it changed? Before, I was, of course, the muesli and the orange juice and the sugar. And I used to have binge eat. I would come home in the evening and I'd binge eat on bread and butter and peanut butter and jam. And my wife would say, but why are you eating this food when I'm cooking you this beautiful meal? And I'd say, because I'm hungry. And it wasn't. It was because I had this food addiction, to, particularly to wheat, I suspect, and to sugar. And, and the beauty of this diet is it's just taken all that away. And, and to me now, food is something I just love eating really good food. And if it's not good food, well, I'm not interested in it. So it's com- my, my, my eating has completely changed. And I get stopped in the street every day by a, a woman who comes and kisses me and says, thank you for taking away my food addictions. And oh, she beautiful. said, that's say now I can control what I eat. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's great when you get to that point where I think for you it's two or, you know, for women it's more likely three meals a day, but certainly that the detachment from food and the satiety is life-changing. Yeah, and I might add that, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at fasting as well. I, I'm, I can go and fast if, I, I, if I'm really busy. Uh, for example, I, I, a few weeks ago I, I was traveling and lecturing and, I missed lunch and I missed dinner and I missed supper and 24 hours, I suddenly haven't eaten for 24 hours. Didn't even notice it until I actually had to think about it. And I think that that's also one of the huge advantages that you, you can fast. And I think fasting is, is a very important component to our health. And not that you fast and don't eat, you fast, but when, when you eat, you eat really well. But you don't eat frequently. And, and I really eat Although I said I eat two big meals a day, that's probably unusual. I probably eat one big meal a day. Wow, I haven't quite mastered that art yet, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're still young. You've got to be my age, and then you probably need. We need so much less food at my age. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So, what? Sorry, what were you going to say, Tim? I was going to say that you know my weight is absolutely stable. Yeah. It's, even though I eat so little, it's absolutely stable, which indicates I'm in caloric balance. And that's an important point to make. So I'm not starving, uh, even though I eat so little, compared to what I I think I, I've reduced my calorie consumption at least 40%. And, of course, I lost 20 kilograms at the same time. And that, that was huge for me. I'm back to my weight that I was when I was 19, 18, 19, 20. And I begin to think that that's the weight we should be. And, and again, it make the point that, you know, when I grew up in the 60s, everyone was lean and everyone looked like me and that was norm. And now no one looks, or well, very few people look like me. And, and the obesity has just been accepted as normal and it's absolutely not. I look at people now and I say, I know exactly what you're eating. <laughs> yes, I do that too. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's frightening when you, when you see it, when you see life in those terms. Yeah, it is. I mean, the world's got a long way to go, but um, I think the real food revolution and certainly what you're doing is making some fantastic changes. So what's next for Tim Noakes? What are you working on in 2015 and, and beyond? Well, you know, if you ask me what I would like to do, it would be to understand type 2 diabetes and how you prevent it. And 
Over the last few weeks or months, I've come across this idea that actually it's not insulin lack that causes diabetes. It's glucagon excess, which is remarkable. So there's a guy called Robert Unger in, or Roger Unger in the United States, and he's shown that you can take diabetic rats, you can introduce diabetes into them. And if you block glucagon production, the diabetes disappears, and it's utterly astonishing. And so his theory is the glucagonocentric model of diabetes. That the real problem in diabetes is the fact that insulin fails to inhibit glucagon production in the pancreas. And that is the key to understanding diabetes. So, and it's really interesting because the very first studies we ever did on low carbohydrate diets were on myself in 1978. And I was helping a colleague, he was wanting to study post-exercise ketosis. Because you can't believe it, in 1978, no one really understood post-exercise ketosis. And I was, the, I was his main guinea pig, so I would run after eating a low-carb diet. On the, I would exercise for two hours, and then we'd measure my ketone bodies. And we published it in the Journal of Physiology, and it's called Post-Exercise Ketosis. So it was a very simple experiment, but it was published. Now, the point was that he went further, Professor Kuslag, and in 2002, he said the key problem in diabetes is a failure of insulin to inhibit glucagon production. And he wrote this article in Journal of Physiology, and it was so complex, I couldn't understand it. <laughs> and now, I realized he was absolutely right, that the evidence is clear, that it's the excessive glucagon production that causes all the problems in type 2 diabetes. And that the minute you inhibit the glucagon, you're fine. And so Dr. Unger has just published a paper last night in PNAS showing exactly the same. They had antibodies to glucagon production in diabetic rats or mice, and the diabetes disappears. And he can reintroduce the diabetes by getting a virus to, to turn on glucagon production in these mice, and they get diabetes again. So it's absolutely clear that insulin isn't the problem in diabetes, it's glucagon. And so the key understanding is why does the liver, well, sorry, why does the pancreas, why do the insulin cells and the beta, the alpha cells secreting glucagon, why do they stop talking to each other? Because that's the basis of this global epidemic of diabetes. And it has to be nutritional. So that there's a nutritional element that causes this dis desynchronization between insulin and glucagon in the pancreas. And incidentally, the reason why insulin doesn't prolong life in people with diabetes, in the sense that if you're on insulin, you die younger than if you're on other drugs. And it's because insulin needs to act in the pancreas, not in the periphery. And you can't get high enough concentrations if you're injecting it into muscle to inhibit glucagon production in the pancreas, which is where the problem is. So that is why instant treat therapy of diabetes isn't the solution. We have to have glucagon blocking, and that's the area for the new medicine. So, so I would love to, to find something that can inhibit glucagon production. The, the, the natural product is leptin. Leptin inhibits glucagon production. And so the question is, how do you increase leptin production in humans? In, in my own experiences, my glucose control is always much better the day after I run. And so I wonder if it's not just simply I haven't burnt the carbohydrates up, but maybe I'm secreting more leptin on, this, on those days after running. And so, so running has some role. 
And then in those people who, who we've reversed diabetes in with this diet, what are they doing? How are they reducing their glucagon production, which is why they're, why they're so-called cured of their diabetes? So I think that there's very exciting times ahead because now we've finally got a focus why insulin doesn't help you and prolong your life in diabetes. We now know that why that is. It's not addressing the issue, and the issue is glucagon. So I think that uh, the next Nobel Prize will probably be for the guy who can work out why does glucagon overproduction occur causing type 2 diabetes and how can we reverse it. And he, will, he or she will probably get the Nobel Prize just as quickly as Banting got it in 1922 for the discovery of insulin. That is absolutely mind-blowing. It is, isn't it, Just? Isn't it? Yeah. So you're going to have a crack at the Nobel Prize? <laughs> no, well... I think Dr. Unger's got a few steps on us. <laughs> you never know. He must be getting pretty close to getting an, a glucagon blocker. Yeah. Wow, I can't wait to see what comes out of that. Yeah, it's fabulous. And I mean, that's the beauty of science, you know. Uh, in, it, I, when I got up and said I'm wrong, and people said, oh, Dr. Noakes, you know, you were wrong there. Surely you're going to be wrong again. Well, that's the nature of science, you know. You move with the data. And it's going to be very interesting to see how quickly industry adapts to this because insulin, production of insulin is, is a massive industry. And if it's not really what we should be doing, how long is it going to take for that industry to change and say, guys, we got it wrong, new evidence, glucagon is the problem, not insulin. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be super interesting to follow just with all the vested interest and big pharma, what they're going to do about the insulin reduction or, you know, removing that part of their industry. Yeah, exactly. And it'd be a great challenge for them. And, yeah, I'm skeptical, but uh, good luck, Dr. Unger. Keep going. We, we need you to find that blocker for glucagon. I certainly need it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're sitting and waiting patiently yourself. <laughs> Beautiful. I'll look into that a little bit more and, and share um, the progress of the studies. Yeah. That's all been so fantastic, Tim. Thanks so much for sharing all your knowledge and your journey with us. I really appreciate your time. I'd love to direct the listeners to the best place that they can find you, whether it's to interact or are you more on social media these days or where can we find you? Yeah, I, you know, I started Twitter like three years ago without having a clue what it was all about and thinking <laughs> it was a complete scam and, you know, waste of time and so on and so forth. And I've discovered it is the best educational tool that is available. I just sit there and I get all this information. I don't need to go to a library. It's all there. It's astonishing. So I am so absolutely up to date because of Twitter. So I, I'm, my Twitter handle is at Prof Tim Noakes, at Prof T-I-M-N-O-A-K-E-S. And I try to send all the information that, that I think is current and important. So that's the way I communicate with the, with the general public. And I'm really proud because I was ranked the 38th most followed scientist in the world on Twitter. <laughs> that, oh, that is a good little yeah. claim to fame. I see lots yeah, of amazing yeah. testimonials that you retreat as well. So that must be wonderful for you to receive all that communication with those whose life has changed yeah, so much. Exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Exactly. And I, I just think it's the most wonderful educational tool. I mean, I know people use it for many other different things, but in terms of an educational tool, it is utterly amazing. I get 
like yesterday there were two amazing papers published <laughs> and I knew about them within half an hour of them being published. The one was by Zoe Harkombi, who's coming to our conference next week, and it's a publication in the British Medical Journal, showing that there was no evidence for changing to the high-fat diet, sorry, to the low-fat diets in 1977. She does a meta-analysis of all the studies that had been done in 1977 and, and 1983, and she shows when the guidelines, official guidelines came out, there was absolutely no evidence that the high-fat diet was dangerous or that the low-fat diet is healthy. So that was one fabulous study. And the other study was from the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in America. And the, the professor, Osama Ombi, who, who wrote it, I had debated him with Gary Taubes and, and Jeff Volek and David Ludwig, the real heavy hitters for the low-carb movement. We debated him in Washington two years ago about low-carbohydrate diets. And at one point, he said something which he clearly didn't understand, low-carb diet. Anyway, he's come forward and said it is the end of the era. It is end of the high-carbohydrate diets for diabetes. He says the evidence for the low-carbohydrate diet is absolutely overwhelming and that if you're a dietitian or a doctor prescribing a high-carbohydrate diet for diabetes, it's probable that you're harming your patients. Yes. Now, this, this comes from the Jocelyn Clinic, which is utterly a game-changer. So now, in South Africa, I face every day the people saying, oh, there's no evidence. Well, now the Jocelyn Clinic has come forward and said the evidence is there and that your prescription of a high-carbohydrate diet is damaging. So now I wouldn't have known about that for months if I hadn't got Twitter. And I, th I think that's people can learn from that. Oh, absolutely. And we hope that the other diabetes organizations worldwide will listen they're going to have to. It's, uh, the evidence is so overwhelming. Yeah. Exciting times, as you said. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Tim. I wish you all the best with your goals. I hope you do work towards that Nobel Prize. I'll um, certainly love to follow your journey towards that new research. Thank you, Steph. It's been a great privilege to chat to you and to your, to your listeners. And I wish you all great health and thank you so much for doing what you're doing in driving this message. Thank you, Tim. That means a lot. I look forward to speaking soon. Thanks, Steph. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.